died about 50 years ago. <laughs> Maybe a little longer than that. But uh, he sounds like a great guy. Um, welcome. How you guys doing? How's your summer? <laughs> That's like that. It's supposed to be great, but I'm really tired. <laughs> That's how summer feels to me. It's really good. It's been fun. Um, wow, all right. So we've been making our way um, through a little series. Oh, wait. Do I have a picture of Savannah? Did I? Okay, put that up. Savannah got married yesterday. Yes. So uh, such a really exciting thing. Savannah's family, they just did a really small thing, so sorry you weren't invited. I was only invited because I did the wedding. Um, and yeah, just a little thing, but Savannah and Sky are now, are now married, uh, and it's really exciting for them. They are n- not here today because they got married yesterday. And they had some other things to do. So um, I have nothing more to say about that. Uh, and so, yeah, if you, next time you see them, just congratulate them, wish them well. We're so thrilled that they're starting their life together. And uh, it's, really, it's really cool and, and really exciting. And I'm just, I just, I'm thrilled. Like, when we interviewed Savannah, we were just like, oh, this person is so great. Like, feel like she's a really great fit. And we didn't, at the, <laughs> it's really funny, actually. Britt and I had extensive conversations of, but who's this person she's engaged to? And maybe, maybe he's weird. And he's not. He's great. Like, it's so cool. Like, Sky is so great. Savannah's so great. And we're happy to have them in, in our community. And they're just a blessing to us. So, so pray for them. Encourage them when you see them. That would be great. Um, we've been making our way through this series, Summer of Love. And part of this series is that each, at the top of each message, we've been hearing from different people uh, each week, sharing a little bit of their testimony. And this week... We have the great pleasure of hearing from none other than our best electric guitarist, only electric guitarist, (laughs) Justin Cassidy. (laughs) Justin, welcome. Glad to have you here. Here's a microphone. Thank you. Yes. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, My voice isn't 100% today, so bear with me as I get through this, but... uh, kind of just wrote out my testimony, so I'm going to read it uh, kind of verbatim here. Um, I was born in Arizona to a family that I would describe as lukewarm. Uh, We went to church on Easter and Christmas and not very often in between. Uh, They split up when I was four years old. Sunday to Tuesday was with dad. Wednesday to Saturday was with mom. Um, My dad being more of the religious bent, more of the family background, uh, religious couldn't really reconcile spending his one day off with his kids at church all the time, so our church life came and went in seasons. Uh, But as a teenager, my grandma encouraged me to join our youth group, which I did. And it was definitely fun and planted some seeds for me, but uh, I didn't really understand the the seriousness of the relationship with God. Um, That wasn't until middle school when a friend of mine uh, invited me to his Pentecostal church. And as an impressionable teenager, the... the, uh, charismatic nature of the Pentecostal church did a lot to help me learn who God was, Um, and I ended up starting a youth worship team uh, that I played drums for at that church, and that really kind of helped me uh, develop that relationship. Um, At about 14 years old, I moved with my mom up here to Washington, and I kept going to a Pentecostal church until I was about 20, Um, again playing on the youth worship team and the Sunday worship team there. Um, And eventually I had a falling out with the worship leader there, so I decided that wasn't the church for me. But uh, after six months of being a young adult and being unchurched, I was scrolling through Instagram one night and saw an ad for I-90 Community Church, and here I am about six years later. Uh, My relationship with God had to be real, and it had to be personal to me from a young age. 
Uh, my parents were encouraging, but they didn't really participate in what I had going on. Um, I have to be honest, though. I was always a little bit bummed that I didn't have some great earth-shattering testimony. You know, it was pretty vanilla, come-to-Jesus story, all things considered. Um, that was until I turned 25. I discovered alcohol at the age of 20, and I really liked the person that I became after a few drinks. I was a lot more confident. I was a lot more fun. Um, I spent those years going out every chance I could, just raging, partying, having a good time, spending tons of cash, driving while intoxicated, all while I would spend my smut, uh, Sunday mornings on stage in our last building. I loved Jesus, but I also loved alcohol a lot. <coughs> I do want to stress that my story is not necessarily about alcohol. Alcohol was just a crutch in my life or an idol, something that I had put above or on par with my relationship with God. It was a dark time in my life, and I didn't realize it. Um, I would stay out until 2, 3, 4 in the morning on Saturdays just to turn around and show up here with about two hours of sleep for worship practice. There were times I would sleep through my alarm and feel guilty and text my team a sincere apology, but I never changed anything. I would even show up to Bible studies just drunk out of my mind, and of course I drove there. Now what happened next I'm not going to say is God's fault, but I will say he was holding my hand through the entire ordeal, and this is my testimony. November 21st, 2019, was a Saturday I went out with a friend. We were out partying until at least 3 in the morning, and of course I had practice the next morning. I had blacked out. I woke up on the floor of a strange room in my friend's house in Renton. It was about 6.30 a.m. I panicked and got in my car to head to worship practice. And as I'm driving along 900, I lost control, hit the embankment, and flipped my car. I'm upside down, dragging across the ground. Luckily, or maybe through divine intervention, I landed in such a way that I could open my door and scramble out uh, with my car being out of the roadway. It was totaled. I was totally fine. Not a scratch on me, not a scratch on my guitar or gear. I texted Danielle and let her know what happened and immediately was welcomed with an outpouring of support from the worship team, including a couple of offers to borrow a vehicle until I figured something else out. It was great knowing I had a team by my side, but man, I needed a drink. The partying didn't stop. In fact, I doubled down on it because God's got me, right? On my birthday, September 18, 2020, 10 months after the ordeal, I have a new car but the same drinking problem. I'm in Ellensburg for work and decided to go out with some friends, and after a long evening, got in my car for the next party when I saw flashing blue and red lights behind me. I got pulled over for a DUI. I will thank God forever that I didn't hurt anyone or anything, but this was the lowest point in my life. I felt like dirt, like the lowest of the low. But this wasn't anything new for me. I had just finally gotten caught. Oh well, better keep drinking. I just had to be more creative with it since now I had a blow and go on my car, which means, you know, they had to make sure that I didn't have any alcohol in my system before I could drive. The evening of November 23rd, 2020, exactly one year and one day since I flipped my car, I was driving, sober this time, in Seattle and took a left through a green arrow. I got T-boned by a drunk driver who fled the scene and flipped my car on my side, told the car number two, not a scratch on me. I got another vehicle a few weeks after that, but the second I had that vehicle, it was hit while parked outside my home and the driver fled. Total card number three. The worship team still had my back, but I couldn't borrow a vehicle this time because of a DUI. I was left with two car payments for vehicles I didn't have and one for a truck I bought shortly after all of this. I was financially strapped. I told a good godly friend of mine about my financial struggles and, and praise God, he offered to pay off the remaining balance of the two vehicles I had. Um, a few months later, I finally had my trial for DUI. My sentence was two years of probation in which I had to abstain from alcohol. It was during that time that I finally realized what I'd been doing and the dangers of my lifestyle. 
I was so blinded by the fun and the partying and the confidence that I wasn't accepting God's best for my life. Nor was I giving him my best. But he was there holding my hand the entire time. And after two years of not drinking, I feel better. I'm happier. I'm healthier. I'm taking my life, my career, my social life more seriously. And I feel closer to God than I ever have before. He delivered me through the darkest points in my life, but I had to be the one to decide that I was done with it. I heard Trey say from the pulpit one time, an alcoholic has the freedom to drink, but he doesn't have the freedom not to drink. I'm standing before you today to tell you that through God's love, I have the freedom not to drink. There's two things I want you to take away from my story. The first is the value of having a godly community around you. Because I was vulnerable and willing to speak my needs out loud, God was able to use these people to provide. Mark 2, 2 through 5 says, They gathered in such large numbers, but there was no room left, not even outside. Uh, then the men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four, since he could not get to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through, and they lowered the mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed men, Son, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith of this man's friends, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Having godly people in your life to share in God's love with you is important. The outpouring of support I receive is representative of God's love. The second thing I want you to consider are the things in your life that are keeping you from seeking God's best for you. What are the idols in your life? For me, it was alcohol. God, in his mercy and love, forgave me. And I'm standing here before you telling you that I am healed, I am redeemed, and I am forgiven. All through God's love. Thank you. I'm, uh, oh no, you're not done yet. <laughs> so I'm struck. I'm struck. Uh, you quoted me. I don't remember saying that. I'm sure I did. I believe you. Uh, I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So, well, no, it probably did. Uh, might have, you could tell me it was, and I would believe you. <laughs> so, um, but that's, I think that's interesting because uh, what, you're, what you're expressing is now on the other side of this, mm -hmm. that you have, you have freedom, you have peace, you have a, a greater relationship with God than you ever had. You had a relationship with God before, and that was genuine. But to move to this point of, like, greater freedom, you actually had to, to, to stop doing things. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, so I, I, I totally get that, like, as a Christian. But that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, as a non-Christian? Yeah, right? I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's, it's, like, it's like we think of freedom— I'm just talking at you. I, I, sorry, I don't even know why. I, I, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we just, we just like think of freedom like, like, well, true freedom is just being able to do whatever I want at any time. But I think what Justin, you're, what you're saying is that you found that freedom actually comes from giving things up, not doing certain things, not being beholden to certain addictions or habits. I think that is very wise. So thank God for that. Um, cool. So what we've been doing in this series is we've been wanting to think about love. Um, we've talked a lot about love so far. And we began where we always have to begin, and that is considering the love that God has for us. Because God is love, and he's demonstrated his love. God has love for us as his creation, as his children. And with, this, with the scriptures, just, just the, that is the underlying undertone of, of the entire scriptures. That God is love, and in his love, 
he is engaging with us. He's, he's saving. He sent Jesus for the sake of love. And, and that love, his love, is the steady foundation of all relationship that we could have to God. And I don't mean just relationship, but relating to God. Like we relate to him on the basis of his love. It, it assures us that we can come to him and that he's not going to just like be either indifferent or angry with us. If we come to him, if we seek him on the basis of like, like seeking, coming to, to him as God and, and knowing his love, then, then everything just like, like sits and settles. My life as a Christian is lived on the foundation of God's love. What he's done. He's taken on flesh. He lived a life. He died on the cross for my sin, and he rose again. All of that is a demonstration of his love. That's what the, the Christian message is. God came to seek and save the lost, providing everything they might need so that they might have freedom and life and peace and res restoration in him. His love led to that historic intervention. Jesus came for that purpose. John 1.18, a really great verse, a verse that you can just think about forever. It says this, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Jesus, the Son of God, who sits at the Father's side, has revealed the Father. He's revealed God's nature. See, you and I, on our own, we could only speculate about God. If we lived in a world where, where Jesus never came, we could just take a guess about what's going on in the heavens, the transcendent side of life. And we would certainly hope that he does love us. I would think we would. We certainly wouldn't want the opposite of that. Or, or, or we would actually probably more likely, we would just hope that he would just leave us alone. At the very least, his indifference is safer for us. If we were left on our own, this is where we would go. Well, just not throw lightning bolts on me, God. That's, that's all I need you to do. Whether you love me or not is fine, as long as you don't, don't hate me. But in the, in the Christian story, this story that we believe is, is true for us and for all people, the Christian story tells us that Jesus is God and he is demonstrating love. He's God himself. He's come to reveal God, to show us God's character, to show us what he's like how he thinks, what he thinks about us, how he wants to engage with us. Jesus is explaining God. That's, that's, and other translations have that little word revealed as explained, which sort of captures both senses of the original Greek word here in the book of John. Jesus has revealed and explained God simply by, by being God in the flesh, being knowable, interacting with people, and intervening to save us from our sin, resurrecting from the dead. He's, he's showing the character of God through his ministry, and we still have a record of it in the scriptures. We know what he was like, and we know what people who are around him experienced, and we know what he is continuing to do even now, 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. We know these things because he's showing us what he's like in Christ. He's revealing and explaining. And what do we see? As we look at Jesus, we see explained and revealed God himself. We see a God who loves and who demonstrates love. It's one thing to have a father who loves you. It's another thing to have a father who demonstrates his love. Right? A good father 
And I'm not saying that's easy. I'll say as a father, but a good father wants to be known as good, wants to be known as loving. Jesus is, is proving and making known the, the love that God has for us. See, the message that Jesus lives and demonstrates and, and through, his, through his continued work in the world explains that out of his love, God is remaking, restoring a broken world. From his love, God is pouring out grace and kindness to us here right now in this very room and downtown Seattle and everywhere all over the world. God is gracing this world with kindness and love. And most of the time, we're just blind to it. But Jesus came so that we might see the goodness and love of God. So what do you do with that? I mean, that's, that's the question in the end, because we have to do something with the revelation of, of God's character and what he's like and the calling that comes along with that. Well, I think you can do two things, really. You can say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that is what God is like or that there even is a God, right? So you can, you can reject the message of the gospel and what Jesus is explaining and revealing. You, you, are, you are, as a free person, able to do that. You can say, I don't believe that God loves me. I don't even believe that God exists. And uh, probably, essentially, nothing will change for you. Your, your experience of life will, I don't, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but probably will just go on as it was. Or the other option the one I recommend <laughs> is that you can consider that fact, what is demonstrated in Christ, and then do the thing that we do with all things that we are considering as facts. You can believe it, or you can reject it. Right? You, you can only make an assessment of something. To believe what Jesus reveals and explains about God, it's called faith what we're called to. It's what the scripture commends over and over again. When God speaks, we should listen. When he reveals, we should accept as truth what he says. Faith is simply an act of agreement that the world is as God reveals it to be in scripture. That things actually work that way. That it's actually better for you to, to not be drunk, uh, to, to not be drunk than to be drunk. I want to make sure I didn't get that mixed up, right? Because that would be bad advice. <laughs> That's actually better, that, that God actually desires something for our life. He has an intention, thoughts, plans. He has good, good things for us. And that we can find those things by, by, uh, by trusting in Jesus and living a life according to what he teaches us is right. And living a new life in him. See, the doubter looks at Jesus and says, well, a guy, he comes, he, he dies, he rises again. I, what does that even mean? What does it even prove? It doesn't mean anything, and you can't even believe it. You're, you're skeptical of, of the, the, the idea even that he might have risen again. But the person of faith looks at Jesus and says, well, he lived. He died. He, he rose again. He came to reveal the love of God. He came to ex explain how much God cares for the world and how he's providing everything so that, that the re restoration and reconciliation might come, that we could know God again. And you say, that proves everything. It means that, that whatever power... Is, is organizing the rules of the world is in agreement with Jesus, right? Because, because if somebody died and rose again, that could only be by the power of God. Because the one thing we can all agree on in all of our experiences is that people die and they don't rise again. But Jesus says, 
So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to demonstrate the power of God by dying and rising again to prove that it is true that all the things that follow, all the things that he claimed, that God is in fact love and he cares for his creation, all of those things are true. See, the message of, of the gospel, the fact that Jesus lived, <laughs> died on a cross for sins, he rose again, it changes everything. If you believe that, because suddenly you realize God came down to earth for my sake. God came down to earth to save me from my sin, from my own blindness. And he's, he's just got love. And he's pouring out love and he's inviting people to know him. Inviting people to live a new way. He's, he's putting your spirit in people. He's calling you to eternal life, life that isn't going to end. And so before this point, I was just stuck in this, in this frame where it's like, okay, i got to make the most of life right now because this is all there is. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But then suddenly, Jesus is showing me there's more to my life than that. My life has so much greater potential. I can live a life of faith, and it can be eternal and good and guided with, and, and filled with meaning. It changes everything to believe in the resurrection. It changes everything to believe that God is everything he says he is. Now, maybe you're a skeptic, and look it. That's okay. A lot of people are skeptical. You might object, and you might say, but how can we really prove that he rose again? Because everything does kind of hinge on this. It is the evidence of the truthfulness of what he said about himself. If he rose again, how can you prove? You, you might say, well, I wasn't there, and I didn't see him rise. So how can, how can I prove that he actually rose again? And I would say this. First, I would just, just, just question if you don't have enough evidence. Because, because like what we read in the Gospels is that there were people who were alive who knew Jesus before he died, and then saw him after he died. And it wasn't just like two or three. It was like hundreds of people who saw Jesus both before and after the resurrection. Now, that is either a massive conspiracy, or it is, it is evidence worth considering, real hard evidence to worth considering. And there's, there's a lot of great research done on like uh, the reliability of the testimony of eyewitnesses, because that's in the ancient world, all they have, they didn't have Twitter or cameras in their pockets like we do, right? So, so okay, so you can, you can be a skeptic and you can just, just undercut the, the, the reasoning and say, I, I didn't see it, so I can't really put my, take it as fact. And so if you can't take it as fact, then you can't really believe it. And if I can't really believe it, then I can't really step into the meaning of all of it. And I can't be assured of God's love, right? You go down this, this road of skepticism where, where skepticism leads you to not being able to know anything. If you are temperamentally a skeptic, you might just be saying like something like, no, it can't be. You'd be like Thomas, right? Thomas, doubting Thomas. Read, read the part, part of the Bible, he's, he, he hears about the resurrection, but he says, unless I put my hands in his side and, and feel the scars on his hands, like I can't believe it. Like, like skepticism is an option, okay? But can I, just, can I just have you think about something? May I just suggest you believe, no matter if you're a skeptic or not, you believe all sorts of things that you cannot prove, that you cannot touch. You believe all kinds of things. Everybody does. Everybody does. Um, give you an example. In the 10th grade, I took chemistry. Don't remember anything about it. You probably, you, you, yeah, it's like, really. But one thing I, well, I guess I do remember this. I do remember this. 
that this is what carbon looks like. Look at a picture of carbon. This is what carbon looks like. Every, you've seen that, right? Or something like that. It's, it's in the recesses of your mind, right? And when you think, what does carbon look like? You think of something like that. Or you look at, there's like even a more minimal like representation of, of carbon, right? This is from Wikipedia. Tells, tells me about what carbon is. Carbon is a chemical element with the symbol C. Oh, yeah. Periodic table. I remember that. And the atomic number six. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> uh, it is a non-metallic and trivalent. It's atom making four electrons available to the form of covalent chemical bonds. Don't remember what any of that means. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But someone is, has assured me that that is true. So that's what, that's what carbon is, and that's what carbon looks like. And uh, for most of us, and for the scientific community, as far as they are concerned, this is what carbon looks like. This is carbon. Uh, it is a fact, right, a fact, an accepted fact by chemists, which I learned, that this is what carbon looks like. But did you know no one has ever seen a carbon atom? We do not have microscopic technology. Like, we cannot image atoms. The, it, it, no one can. They're getting closer and closer, and they still just look like little dots. The best picture, which is like, I think, 100 magnification. We don't have, no one has ever seen this. And yet we, we take it on faith that this is what it looks like. The existence of, of atomic structure that looks something like this is taken as fact, though no one has ever seen it. And of course we could argue about how different, you know, scientific knowledge is versus, like, confidence in the resurrection. Like, are those real things? But, but to make the point, just to, to drive it home, I just want to read you something from Leslie Newbigin. He says this. It's difficult to read the whole story of the human quest for knowledge without coming to the conclusion that it is more dangerous to be afraid of making a mistake than to be afraid of missing something real. To put it another way, it's possible to be led astray both by too much faith and by too much doubt. And there can be no question that the active principle in knowing is faith. The ancient world of Anselm, uh, words of Anselm, uh, is true, uh, true of much more than theology. One must believe in order to understand. I, there is operating all around you a confidence that we can put faith in things that we don't know. It's just we want to discriminate about what are the things that we can know and, and, and don't know. And whoever made these atomic models, right, this picture of carbon and developed that idea, is probably well aware of the fact that should we ev ever be able to have the technology to actually see what atoms look like, that there is a good chance that they will be wrong. <laughs> that they'll get there and say, ah, yeah, well, I mean, we took our best shot. We were, we were actually representing ideas, uh, not actually the actual substance of the things. But that didn't stop them, right? They didn't stop them from having the boldness to say, this is what carbon looks like. Because they saw things, and they could observe them in the real world, and they pointed them, pointed them to make an assumption on the basis of, of, of faith, they wouldn't call it faith, but on the basis of faith, that this is how we can explain for the things that we can see. This is how we can account for the things that we can see. See, we've been hearing testimonies throughout this series, and I've enjoyed that because they're just, it's like awesome to just hear what God has, has made so clear to people over time to the point where they'd be willing to stand up in front of a room and put it on the internet and talk about it. To share what God has done. But I'll tell you this, all these people 
they came to a point of confidence. At some point, they, they knew that God was at work in their life. Because as they took steps of faith, right, not certainty, but trust, then they experienced, like, that, that it was true. That it was worth trusting in this thing that they couldn't prove definitively because they weren't there. But they took it on faith. They took the testimony of what they said is true. God loves me. He cares for me. And the more I think about that, the more I say, okay, well, if he loves me and cares for me, then that means I have a certain calling in my life and I can live according to, according to the belief that that's true. And the, you step out and do that and you find, oh, look. God does love me. He does care for me. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit in me. He's watching over me. He's sovereignly directing my life. He's sending friends and people in my life to encourage me. And what I'm finding is as I trust him, as I take these little steps of faith, not on the basis of the kind of like scientific certainty that we've, I think, sort of invented, but on the basis of I have enough and I know enough about God to step out into this thing and to find out, is it true? And as I take more steps of faith, I, I get the feedback from the world. Yeah, it's, it's true. God is telling me more and more that he is worth trusting. God is proving himself more and more. That is what these people who are giving testimonies are seeing. They're experiencing. Because they're just as skeptical as everybody else. Anybody who ever came to God is, is really just as skeptical. right? But God proves himself. And so my, my challenge to you is to consider that. That if... As Newbigin says, the active principle of knowing is faith, and that it is more dangerous to be afraid of making a mistake than to be afraid of missing something real. What does that mean for you? Because if you're just going to sit in skepticism for the rest of your life, I would say you are putting your bet on something, and you might be, you, you, are, you are missing out on something that is real. And in order to come to know that with the confidence that you desire, you actually have to step into it first to prove it and to test it. I realize I'm super off track on my series, right? Because uh, I told you we were going to talk this week about how do we grow in a love for God. And, and we just like did some apologetics there. So, But I think it was important. Uh, I think it is important because, um, I, well, that will become clear in a second. But I told you we'd be talking about how do we love God. And by that I mean, how do we actually develop a love for God? Um, and we, 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 went, we, we were, you know, kind of in this, this answering that question preliminarily last week. So part one, and I presented you this proposition, and I, and I proved it. If you, if you want more evidence, go back, go back and listen to that one, okay? I'm not going to do the whole sermon again. But I made the, the argument that first, we grow in love by the power of the Spirit. That, that's what the Bible teaches us. Ephesians 1.13, we went over Ephesians 1 last, last, uh, last time, but he's just, just quickly, he says this. Um, Paul says this. In him you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. What Christians believe, part of the gospel is when I believe, Jesus saves me and puts his Holy Spirit within me. And what we find as we examine the biblical theology of what is the Holy Spirit doing in my life, what, it, what, what, the, what the Bible tells us is that the Holy Spirit is doing a lot of things, but he's developing love. Romans 5, pouring out love in your hearts. 
the Holy Spirit is just doing the inner work of sorting out the stuff within you that's just against God. And there's, there's lots of it. There's lots of stuff in me that is very much against God. And the Holy Spirit is dealing with that stuff. And he's doing it supernaturally. He's doing it. I, I wanna, I, I'm tempted to say he's doing it all on his own, but I don't think that's always true. I think, honestly, we have to participate with God in this. We have to, we have to participate with God, God in this process. Like We have to respond to what he's doing in us, and we have to seek the Lord and seek the Holy Spirit because a lot of what he's doing in order to develop love is that we have to stop loving the things that are killing us, that are enslaving us, right? And so the Holy Spirit is doing that work. He's working that stuff out, but we are participating in it. In our participation, we, we can't forget that. Um, so we don't want to think of, well, if I want to love God, it's like a passive process. It's not. It's really not passive. And in fact, I think one of the, the other really important ways and things that we need to know is, is another way that we grow in love is by choosing obedience in temptation. We choose obedience in temptation. I think I've got a slide for that. Um, can I just say that? You want to love God more? Obey. Care about obedience. Like, say it again. <laughs> you want to love God more? Obedience matters. Because we are in a culture that really rejects this premise. We think, well, well, love, it's just like a feeling. And, like, it doesn't really matter what I do so much as how I, how I feel. And I would say that totally flies against Everything that Jesus ever taught about love. We looked at this verse a couple weeks ago, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Pretty straightforward. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I made the point uh, when we looked at this uh, last time. I got the verse up there, uh, I think, Caleb, unless I don't. It's possible to. Um, and and I, made, I made the point, I want to hold to this, right? This is true that... that Obedience comes from love. Love is, is the basis for obedience. So we do need to love God if we're going to obey him, but we should not let that fact kind of make us think that obedience doesn't matter at all. Jesus says, love me, yes. Obey me, yes. Love me more, you'll find the power to obey. But we can't lose fact that obedience, uh, you can't miss the fact that obedience matters. Love is the superpower that makes obedience possible. Absolutely. It, it makes it possible for me to sit when I, like, like Justin, like, think, I really want a drink. I know what I want, but I really feel like I'm called to put that away. Love for God, over love for myself and my immediate desires, is, is creating within me the conditions in which I can say no to what I want so that I can get what I really want and what God tells me is actually best for me. It's like, but, but we have to get to the point of actually living that out. Obedience matters. Through steps of obedience, we actualize this work of the Holy Spirit. He's giving us love, affection for God. But that affection get solidified in action. If I just think in my head all day long that I love my wife, but I never tell her, I never serve her, I never put her first, I might feel like I love her, but the truth is that I'm not maturing into that love. 
I will mature into that love as I act on it. And so Justin had a choice, right? Along over the course of years, and, and you, you chose not to keep doing what you thought you should do for a while, right? And by God's grace, you are here, man, so beautiful. And I, I, I could tell you some stories about the ways in which I said, oh, I love God, and he's done so much for me, and then I'm going to choose my way. Yeah, it's like, that's the technical term. I just had an opportunity to make a fart sound, so I had to take it. Uh, but I do that continually, right? And I may, in fact, feel love for God, and yet I, I keep banging my head against the wall, and I think, well, it doesn't feel like it used to feel. I don't feel as good about this love for God anymore. And what's wrong? It must be that I need to feel greater things. When oftentimes what's wrong is that I'm just not taking steps of obedience. I'm not willing to actualize what I'm called to. And the Bible makes it so clear that we are to obey God. I, I mean, I already showed you that thing from Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13, really helpful verse to have in your back pocket. No temptation has overtaken you. Oh, I'm doing it from my... Uh, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So God doesn't... like we, The fact that we're tempted is not a sign that God doesn't love us. Right? Sometimes we take that. Like, oh, why am I in this issue? Like, we blame God for, God for our, our failure to obey. Like... What the Bible makes really clear is that we will, in the course of wanting to love God and wanting to live a life where we, where we, where we are, are, are stepping into maturity, we will face temptation. But we have a promise in the middle, midst of that. Number one, that you will not face a temptation that you cannot overcome, that you can't find the love and obedience to follow through on, number one. And number two, like, he's going to provide a way out for you. You see how that's actually interactive with the Holy Spirit? I don't need to sit in a moment of temptation and just look for the willpower. I actually need to look for the provision of God to get me through this thing. The love that I maybe am questioning because maybe I love drinking more. Or at least in the moment I want to drink more. Or maybe I love pornography more. Or in this moment I do. Or maybe I love... I don't know, money and stealing money more <laughs> than what God calls me to. Tax evasion more. <laughs> Just to stick it to the man. I don't even need the money. <laughs> Whatever the thing is, right? Like we feel lots of temptations in life. And the temptation is the thing that we know. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I really want to, right? And then we say, well, if I want to, isn't that mean I should be able to? And what God says is, is no, like in the course of loving him and growing into maturity of love, you will have to make choices between what he calls you to and what you want. Christianity 101. And yet we question it so easily, right? We want to say, ah, oh, but I want it, so it must be what God wants for me. Because, because the, uh, on the other side of this temptation, we actually find, I'm so glad that I obeyed because now I have this freedom that I didn't have before. 
Now alcohol doesn't have control over me. I have control over me, and I am giving that control to the Holy Spirit, and I'm giving it to God to honor him. And I'm finding that I am able to obey, and as I obey, my life makes sense again. And that is evidence all the more that God is real. That, that his death and resurrection, sending the Holy Spirit in me, is the only thing that's ever actually worked for me. And the more I live my life that way, the more I see, how, how could I have ever lived without this before? Without his care and his guidance and walking in his love. Remember Newbegin's little, little saying we talked about at the beginning, the active principle of knowing is faith. If you want to know that obeying God is good, then you start to exercise faith. And faith in the middle of temptation looks like, I believe God more than I believe my wants. I'm making choices accordingly. It's hard because you have the evidence of your desire right in front of you. But you have the evidence of, of, of Scripture and His calling and the promises that He makes. And in order to know that His way is better, you actually have to take steps of obedience on the basis of faith so that you'll get to the other side and say, yeah, yeah, that was the right choice. That was way better than another drink. That was way better than a few more dollars in my bank account. That was way better than a moment of joy and ecstasy. Like, this was better. It is obedience to God is creating with me love, and that love is just pouring out in my life in, in power and joy and peace that I could not have any other way. Not because I'm proud of myself that I did such a good job. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so better than all the other people. It's that you're finding that actually God has revealed to you what the meaning of life is and how it actually works, and that the good stuff comes when we put him first and that it actually makes sense to deny myself for a little bit so that I could have freedom in the long run. Man, but you, you'll never know that unless you take a first step of faith. You'll just say, I don't know, people say that it's really good, but I feel these things right now. But unless you like step out into obedience, you'll never know how true God's word is. And so, honestly, like, obedience makes sense when we actually think about the, fa the fact that God has uh, good things for us, and, and we start to experience those as we take steps of obedience by faith. We, we have the evidence on the other side of it. I think also, like, like as we consider what Jesus has called us to, um, look, I'm just going to read you a quote. I was trying to set it up. I'm just going to read you a quote. We're just going to jump in. This is a little choppy this morning. I apologize. Um, but we got to got to move. <laughs> okay, he says this. Paul sees the community of faith being caught up into the story of God's remaking of the world through Jesus Christ, right? His love being played out, his redemption being played out. This is what Paul's message was. He recognized that. Thus, and this is his big claim, to make ethical discernment is, for Paul, simply to recognize our place within the story of redemption, the epic story of redemption. There's no meaningful distinction between theology and ethics in Paul's thought. Because Paul's theology is fundamentally an account of God's work of transforming people into the image of Christ. Here's what this guy's saying. 
Ross Hastings, an ethicist from Vancouver. He's saying, look it, theology, knowledge of who God is and what he's up to, revealed in Christ, that's the basis for our theology, is Christ. <laughs> it is leading me to ethics, to know who God is and how he's engaging in the world and what he wants for the world and the fact that he is doing this epic story of redemption in Christ where he's taking people who were sinners and lost and making them Christ-like. Understanding what God is up to in the world helps me to find out where I am and it helps me to know how I should live my life. There's no distinction between theology, understanding what God is doing in the world, in Christ, his love poured out in the world for the sake of bringing about Christ-likeness and renewal in the world, and then knowing what I should do. I'm being caught up into an epic story. As I understand the love of God and his demonstration of that love in Christ, I understand, oh, the invitation that I have is to crucify the old man so that I might live. How awesome is that? That's, that should be our reaction when we think about that. That's a great invitation. Because in order to be Christ-like, I have to stop being Trey-like. That's my problem. I have to stop being like me if I'm going to be like Christ. And I have a way to do that. And that is that I recognize that I am invited to have Christ in me. As I believe and trust in him, and he sends the Holy Spirit, and I start to live a life of obedience by faith. I'm not earning my way in. I'm actualizing what God has already promised and invited me into by faith and by obedience. If we continually just say obedience doesn't matter and we just go our own way, we will get to the end of our Christian lives and we will wonder, what was this all for? What, was, what were these promises? And the answer will be, the promises were right there for the taking, but you had to step into them. God was trying to bring about Christ-likeness in your life, bring about freedom and peace and joy, and we just left it on the table. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about that. Probably go to heaven anyway, because God is good. But I'm telling you this. This life can be more. We can experience... <laughs> through faith, through trusting, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and through obedience, the transformation of our inner man into the likeness of Christ. Don't settle for less than that. <laughs> Don't settle for less than that. And along that road is obedience. I'll leave you with Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. The worship team can come on up. Therefore, since you also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, that is, consider all the people who ever interacted with God. Think about what they've been doing and what they're saying is true about God. Since we are surrounded so by such a large crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. If we look at what God did through them, then it behooves us. Sorry. We would be wise to lay aside the hindrance in the sin that we so easily get ensnared in and run the race with endurance, the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to know, how do I have this new life with God, this, this Christ-likeness that, that, promised, that is promised? Then we look to Jesus, who authors and finishes our faith. We trust in him, and we understand what he was doing. He was finding joy in surrender and obedience. That might not make sense to us, just like in our natural selves, but the promise of the Christian life is as we trust and obey Jesus Christ, as we put our hope in him, we actually find joy on the other side. And so, friends, the invitation that I leave you with is to be joyful people who love God. And who through this step of obedience are finding that to be true and truer, deeper love, actualized in obedience. Very countercultural, but I got to tell you, it's the secret sauce. So enjoy the sauce. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. You know, God, we've got more to say about how we love God, and we'll, we'll cover that next week. But um, Lord, we, we take it on faith that you love us and that you're good, and that though we experience difficulty and temptation in life, Lord, we want to press into the truer and better thing, Lord Jesus. And we ask you in our temptations and in our trials for the faith, the faith and the confidence that's going to lead us to put you first. Even when we have strong desires, Lord, to, to put our love for you, which you've put in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, just to pursue that first, Lord. It's for our peace. It's for our joy. It's for our confidence, Lord. Lord, we want to walk into all that you have, and we ask you, Lord, to guide us and empower us and, and call us and remind us to obey you, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up and worship together.